0: World War II radio podcast. Today's episode consists of two segments, both from July 21st, 1942. The first is CBS's The World Today, with news updates from London, Cairo, Washington, and New York. The second segment is commentary on the rising cost of living from Fulton Lewis, Jr. Lewis, a well-known conservative commentator, delivered his commentaries five nights a week, or the Mutual Network throughout the 1940s. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast.
4: CBS World News brings you The World Today, presented Monday through Saturday at this same time. During the next 15 minutes, you will hear news and analyses by Quincy Howe and CBS correspondents at home and abroad. And here are the major highlights in the news of the day. Germans advance toward Rostov and Stalingrad, but fall back in Voronezh area. London talks second front again. British war vessels blast Matru. Japanese recapture Wen Chao. Argentine foreign minister snipes at USA. Roosevelt names
5: Leahy chief of staff. And now, Quincy Howe in the news. The Germans continue to advance toward Rostov from three directions and toward Stalingrad from two. The Russians, however, still hold Voronezh and claim they are mowing down between 3,000 and 4,000 Nazis each day. And late this afternoon, just two weeks after the German high command claimed Voronezh, the CBS shortwave listening station heard a BBC broadcast quoting the German radio as having admitted a German withdrawal in the Voronezh section after a two-day Russian attack. The German threat to Rostov and Stalingrad and reports of Japanese troop concentrations near Siberia have started another flow of Second Front stories from London. The questions of the hour are whether the shipping can be spared from the Russian front, whether a limited Second Front would make enough difference to be worth trying, and what a Japanese attack on Siberia would do to Soviet resistance. The answers to these questions remain obscure. British warships and naval planes have bombarded the Axis-held port of Matru for the third time in four days and appeared to have wrecked the place. RAF planes have knocked out 50 grounded Axis planes behind the lines and blasted a fleet of, of barges near the Libyan port of Sidi Barani. If Rommel does not strike fairly soon on the Egyptian front, it would seem to indicate that his supply lines are in bad shape and that a British offensive might make headway. General Stilwell's headquarters report that U.S. Army bombers have hit the Japanese for the third day in succession, sinking two ships on the Yangtze River near Kyukang, an important base for Jap operations in Kangxi and Chekiang provinces. But the Chinese report the Japanese have recaptured Wen Chao last Saturday, 24 hours after Chinese troops had driven them from that big and vital Chekyang province seaport. Montevideo, capital of the anti-Axis Republic of Uruguay, claims to have the inside story on what Argentina's pro-axis foreign minister Ginatsu told last week's secret session of the Chamber of Deputies. It seems that Ginatsu accused Washington of having originated a no convoy, no arms policy whereby Argentina gets no military equipment from the United States unless Argentine vessels proceed with United States convoys or else provide convoys of their own in the submarine-infested zones, where the Argentines have lost a couple of vessels during the past several months. And then from Washington comes the news that President Roosevelt has appointed Admiral Leahy as his chief of staff, a new and vital war job. Admiral Leahy recently returned from Vichy, where he served as our ambassador. The Navy Department has also announced that the United States submarines have sunk three more Japanese destroyers in the Aleutian Island waters, and that Kiska Island, Japanese-occupied Kiska, has been bombed again, though we don't know with what results. Now for further word from the nation's capital, now for a report from Washington.
1: CBS Washington, Eric Severide reporting.
5: Two hours ago at his press and
1: radio conference, the president told us that Admiral William DeLay will now become chief of staff to the commander-in-chief. That may confuse you. It confused a lot of people at the conference. The President gave few details about this new job, and he urged the journalists present not to read too much into the arrangement. For a long time, critics have said here that we need a Supreme Commander over both our Army and our Navy. It appears perfectly clear tonight, however, that Admiral Lee is not being given powers of Supreme Command. If there is any Supreme Commander over the American forces on land and sea, it is still the President himself. You might call the Admiral the Chief Coordinator of Military and Naval Affairs, or you might call him the President's Chief Intelligence Officer. He is certainly in a powerful position, but he is not a supreme commander. The President is expected to continue his practice of conferring directly with General Marshall and Admiral King when important decisions are to be made. Admiral Lay will relieve the President, however, of the day-to-day war duties which now consume a great amount of the Commander-in-Chief's energy and time. The Admiral is a quiet man with a habit of long silences while other men talk. He is a realist and he works hard. He has the President's complete confidence, as Mr. Roosevelt made clear today. He has been Chief of Naval Operations and, until lately, was our Ambassador to Marshal Petain in Vichy. This appointment has nothing to do with any unified command between the British and ourselves or between the United Nations generally. There will still be pressure here for such a command, and many people feel that some steps will be taken in that direction. Within the next two or three days, you will hear the soft but deliberate voice of Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who never makes a nationwide speech unless he feels there is a good deal which needs saying. The speech was given some advanced billing today by the President himself, who went over each paragraph with the Secretary this morning. Mr. Hull will talk about the gravity of the war and what victory will mean for the world. It will be an important statement of American views and policy. Yesterday, President Green of the AFL demanded there be no arbitrary freezing of wages in this country. The President said today that he's not planning to ask for that. But there will be a message from him to Congress on the general subject of inflation control. There will also be a definitive statement on the unhappy subject of rubber, but not for two or three weeks. Today's news on that subject is that the recent collection drive brought in more than 450,000 tons of scrap rubber, which now go into the government stockpile. That is nearly seven pounds of rubber for every person in the country. American submarines, as you've just heard, have sunk three more Japanese destroyers in the Aleutians. And here in Washington, Anthony Diamond, the congressional delegate from Alaska, said that around 20,000 Japanese troops altogether have been landed in those islands. And now, a report from London.
4: CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. The House of Commons today discussed the Home Secretary's powers to detain people on security grounds without trial under the now-famous Defense Regulation 18B. The Home Secretary told the House the country as a whole is saying, we have seen Norway, Belgium, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and France, and there's going to be none of the fifth-column nonsense in this country. Then the House approved the Home Secretary's handling of 18B by a vote of 220 to 25. Royal Air Force Fighter and Bomber Command kept up the big sweeps over northern France, and British bombers were over northwest Germany in daylight again today. The war in the air continued to be fought on the radio waves as well. Those German radio stations, which pretend to be in Britain, are still pouring out thousands of words on the question of the second front. They take all sides. That is, they pretend to take all sides, but, of course, what they really take is the German side. For instance, the station which pretends to be a free Scotch station said they'd consulted a lot of experts, but none showed any enthusiasm or optimism about a second front. Occasionally, these fake freedom stations are now showing signs of increased cunning. This week, for example, one of them broadcast a report of the fighting in Egypt, a report which, for a change, was almost true. Undoubtedly, the Germans hoped they could win the trust of a British audience by broadcasting a truthful item. But the British people go on listening to their own BBC. However, British listeners are going to hear no more crooners. Under a new wartime policy, expressed in a letter sent today to British music publishers and dance band leaders, the BBC says, henceforth, British radio will exclude anemic or debilitated vocal performance by male singers and will exclude insincere and over-sentimental style of performance by women singers. Musical numbers, which are slushy in sentiment, or based on tunes borrowed from standard classical works, are also out. And now the German fake freedom stations will probably start putting on what the BBC calls anemic or debilitated vocal performances as a sort of crooner's black market. Now for a report from Egypt. Go ahead, Cairo.
2: UBS Egypt Winston that reporting. In this period of dubious battle called Lull, the have been active along the Western Front, seeing what's up behind the enemy's line, grenading a tank now and then, sometimes bagging a few prisoners so headquarters can keep tabs on the enemy's troop movement. From Alamein today, U.S. correspondent Hester Morrison reported another day of quiet, punctuated only by the thud of shells at the further end of that stretch of desert. Every day of quiet at the front still counts enormously behind the lines. It's a big, unwieldy job, this defense of the Middle East, and it is still primarily a British job today. You can't expect a full blown American expeditionary force to pile off the docks of Suez or Basra and spring into the desert overnight. American tank personnel is here in Egypt, helping British crews in the maintenance and overhaul of our General Grant and General Lee. Our men know their tanks, but that's a different matter from taking the steep plunge into battle. The desert takes a lot of warming up, especially for armored troops, and the period of shakedown and acclimatization can't be much shorter than three months. In the air, we can be, and we are, effective now. In six weeks here, the U.S. Army Air Corps has spread a lot of bombs over the enemy's supply route, and more planes are coming. But building a large, heavy-hitting air force isn't just a six-week job. We need many more bombers still to cover the enemy's lines as they must be covered all the way back to their Italian bases. If all the long-range bombers and fast mediums and low flaring attack bombers and fighters that have come from the United States and are now strung out in various stages of assembly from here to Basra, if all were massed together on one front, they'd make a terrific cloud of planes. But to put them all in the air when and where they're needed most is a gargantuan job of maintenance for which American repair crews are chiefly needed. And sometimes maintenance has a hard time keeping pace with supplies. The battle for the Middle East has just begun, America, and our part in the fight is just beginning, too. The enemy is not going to give up, whether he's at Benghazi or Alamein. This is going to continue for quite a while, and we'll want everything we can get as soon as you can get it to us. I return you
5: now to CBS in New York. Rounding out this picture of the world today, there is nothing we have heard up to now, nothing, to suggest that the war has taken a decisive turn anywhere, especially what we've just heard from Mr. Burdett in Cairo, where he points out the fighting has still to begin. The Axis breakthrough in Egypt has not reached its objective. Neither has the German breakthrough on the South, on the South Russian front. The the fighting proceeds at a more furious pace in Russia than it does in Egypt. That does not mean, though, that a decision is any nearer in Russia than it is in Egypt. Both sides in Egypt have limited resources. They have to husband what they've got. Neither Rommel nor Auchinleck has yet chosen to launch an all-out offensive. Why, we don't exactly know, but probably it's this shortage of supplies. But if and when the offensive does come, from whichever side it may come, The fate of Egypt is likely to be settled in fairly short order, one way or the other. On the Russian front, it is evident that the Germans are throwing everything they have got into the drive for the Caucasus. We do not yet know whether the Russians have thrown everything they have got into the defense of Rostov and Stalingrad. In all probability, they have not. In all probability, Timoshenko still has something in reserve. Whether it's enough to turn the tide, we ought to discover during the next week or two. But Suez and Alexandria... Rostov, Stalingrad, and the oil of the Caucasus remain in just as much peril today as they were a week ago. Meanwhile, the second front in Western Europe is receiving more attention, but so is the second front in Eastern Asia. Will Britain and America strike to save Russia from the West before Japan strikes to knock out Russia from the East? And now more news. The CBS shortwave listening station has just heard the Soviet Midnight Communique by way of the British Broadcasting Company, which says that today Soviet troops fought the enemy in the area of Varanez and southeast of Varshilovgrad. No material changes took place on the other sectors of the front. The chief of Mexico's postal service announced today that thousands of packages of Nazi propaganda are pouring into his country by way of Argentina. Gerhard Wilhelm Kunze. Former national leader of the German-American Bund, today admitted in court that he had conspired to spy out American defense secrets for Germany and Japan. Kunze, who was American-born, changed his plea of innocent that he filed ten days ago to an admission of guilty as charged. The Swedish liner Gripsholm arrived today at the port of Lorenzo Marques in Portuguese East Africa with 1,500 Japanese and Thai officials aboard from the United States and Latin America to be exchanged for Western Hemisphere nationals released from Japan and Japanese-occupied territories. And Congress today approved a measure to create a special corps of sailor rats similar to the Army's WACs. And that's the world today.
4: CBS World News presents this program each evening, Monday through Saturday at this same time, 6.45 p.m. Eastern Wartime.
3: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis, Jr. speaking from the studios of radio station WOL in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The president told us today at his news conference that he's sending to Congress in the next few days a special message on the subject of combating increases in the cost of living. He indicated rather clearly that in that message, he will deal with the question of a ceiling on wages. He said flatly that he is not planning to place any ceiling on wages himself, but he dodged the point as to whether he'll suggest that Congress do so. By way of background, I learned on very good authority late this afternoon that Mr. Leon Henderson has been urging the president for some days past to take some sort of effective steps to stabilize wages in all lines of industry all over the nation, and he has said that unless that is done, it will be impossible for him to hold down prices effectively. This message that by the president that's in the making may be the answer to those recommendations by Mr. Henderson. We'll soon find out on that point. And this much does seem to be certain. Neither Leon Henderson nor the president are very favorably impressed with a new wage policy that's been adopted by the War Labor Board. And that policy, you know, is to recognize the right of all workers in all lines, war production or otherwise, to have sufficient of a wage increase before the first of between the 1st of January 1941 and the 15th of May of this year, that's about 15-month period, to counteract a 15% increase in the general cost of living during that 15-month period. If they have received a wage increase of that amount since January 1st of 1941, they don't get any more. If they have not, they are entitled, according to this policy, to an increase not more than that amount. Mr. Henderson feels that whether that's fair or not, The increases that are granted will boost the cost of production and thereby boost the price of things that are bought. And that is what he and the president are trying to fight. There are all sorts of developments on the rubber situation tonight. It's a bit ironical. For weeks, you and I were trying to get some action to keep civilian automobiles on tires. Now the action is coming so thick and fast that it's hard to keep up with. The president, as you know, announced that. Total collections in the nationwide scrap rubber drive amounted to almost 455,000 tons. He's appointing technical experts to find out how much net usable rubber there is in that total after the fabric and metal and other foreign matter is eliminated. But in any event, it's considerably more than the gloomy estimates that were turned over to the president by some of his advisors before this drive began. Some of those estimates, you may recall, were as low as 100,000 tons and even lower. Many estimates that supposedly were based on scientific information were as low as 200,000 tons. Perhaps the best record of the nation in this scrap rubber collection by the oil companies was made by the Lyon Oil Company of Arkansas, where they collected an average of one and a third tons per employee. And second place, according to the figures that I have available, goes to the Standard Oil Company of California, which collected nearly 18,000 tons with only 17,580 employees. That's a little better than one ton per employee. The president indicated rather plainly that there will be no combination gasoline and tire rationing program for the nation as a whole. In Congress, the Senate actually began to debate today on the synthetic rubber question. There's a bill under consideration to set up a separate agency that would have sole control over synthetic rubber uh, production from alcohol the theory being to get a more friendly administration of the alcohol rubber problem. It certainly unquestionably is a fact that the alcohol rubber problem has not been in very under very friendly administration thus far from the rubber reserves corporation but it's up to Congress to decide whether this is the best way to correct that problem or not. Senator Barkley, the Democratic floor leader and presumably representing the president's views on the matter, took the opposition side today, and so did other administration regulars in the Senate. In all fairness, it would seem to be wise at this stage to keep in mind the real objective. Uh, What we want is rubber by the quickest possible method, rubber from alcohol insofar as that method will produce rubber quicker than we can get it from petroleum but not rubber from alcohol, merely for the sake of getting it from alcohol. And it does seem to call for some careful consideration, at least, as to whether a separate agency would accomplish that objective. In the House of Representatives, a special committee was set up, composed of five Democrats, five Republicans from the eastern seaboard states, to begin next Monday an investigation into the Atlantic seaboard problems on tires, and incidentally on gasoline, too. Uh, The chairman of that committee is Representative Fitzgerald of Connecticut, and the ranking Republican is Representative Hartley of New Jersey. They announced that the first witness witness to be called on Monday morning by that committee will be a reporter by the name of Fulton Lewis, Jr., who has had a few selected words to say on the subject of synthetic rubber in the weeks past. The rubber industry itself presented its program for handling the tire shortage this afternoon. They opened a huge exhibit at the Willard Hotel here with samples of the kind of tires that they've been able to produce with synthetic rubber, also samples of the rubber itself, and the things that go to make it up. They say that they can produce enough tires to keep all mechanically usable civilian automobiles on the road with 60% of the mileage, the total mileage of those cars last year. To do that, they say they want 75% of the butyl and fire call rubber production in the present program, both of which are the very least important of the government's war program and represent a very small part of the entire synthetic rubber production. And they say they need, along with that, about 3,000 tons of natural crude rubber to cement the treads to the casings. That's a very small amount when you consider that the present stockpile of crude rubber is 600,000 tons. They say they also need 97,000 tons of scrap rubber, which apparently we have, and then some, in the rubber collection campaign. The most important angle of all is that this program that they announced today does not include the more than 200,000 tons of additional Buna S synthetic rubber, the high-grade type, which the Petroleum Coordinator's Office is in the course of whisking out of nowhere from the petroleum industry, as I announced to you last night. With all that plus 8 million more tires, which Mr. Leon Henderson has on hand in, shall we say, economic refrigeration, frozen, uh, there ought there certainly ought to be a solution of the tire situation in sight. Now, in the last three or four days, ladies and gentlemen, I've had telegrams and letters from all over the nation about certain statements and accusations that have been made about the handling of post-exchange stores on United States Army posts. Those statements are that these post-exchanges, which sell candy and soft drinks and all sorts of general merchandise to the soldiers in the Army camps, are run by the officers of the army, that the post-exchanges have made exorbitant profits, more than 13% in some months, and that the profits are spent by the army officers on themselves, that those army officers generally vote to spend it on a beer party or athletic equipment, that only the officers and not the enlisted men benefit from these profits in the post-exchange stores, and that that is all wrong. Now, it's not my business to correct every misstatement that's made publicly in the United States. But in this case, it is a bit different. This involves a vital and fundamental part of the military security of the United States government, of you and me. Uh, The respect and confidence that soldiers have for their officers. And so it becomes something considerably more than just a harmless mistake of fact. If the enemies of America could pick the one thing that they'd rather do above everything else, it would be to to destroy the magnificent relationship between American officers and American soldiers. The finest relationship in any army in the world, bar none. The effect of these statements has been to, or would be, to incite resentment, mistrust, ill-will toward officers on the part of the soldiers. Nothing could be more dangerous, and so I've spent a good deal of time and care today getting the true facts for you on the whole situation as they come from... The army in official language, and here they are for what they're worth to you. The post exchanges are operated for the benefit of the privates and non-commissioned officers of the army. Non-commissioned officers of the army, and the officers and members of their family are merely—that uh, is, the commissioned officers and members of their families—merely are permitted to buy there as a courtesy to them. These post exchanges actually are run by non-commissioned officers under the sergeants and corporals under the supervision of a board of commissioned officers on each post, that board including the commanding officer of the post. A monthly audit of the books is made and actual vouchers have to be presented for every sale by the post exchange and for every purchase of new stock by the post exchange. The office of the uh, Inspector General of the Army also inspects those books and the Army says that it's impossible for any shortage or irregularity to be covered up. The profits of every post exchange, by actual army regulation are spent by the officers, that is true. But every penny also by regulation is spent for the sole benefit of the soldiers themselves and the army states that commissioned officers are the only people in uniform that cannot in any way benefit from the profits. The way it works is that at the end of the month after the books are audited, the board of officers meets and the chaplain who will say wants a certain amount of money for charity work among the enlisted men. It can only be used by the enlisted men. The athletic director also will be allotted so much money for gloves and baseball equipment, and some more will be granted to the playground equipment for the children of the soldiers. The athletic equipment is solely for the soldiers themselves. After those allotments are made, the remaining amount is divided up among the companies that make up that post according to the number of men in each company, and the officers of that company are required by regulation to use that money for the benefit of the majority of the privates and non-commissioned officers in that company. Sometimes they buy a few extra items for the mess to improve the monotony of army food. Sometimes it's spent on magazines and new furniture for the recreation hall, or sometimes it goes into a party for the soldiers at which they have a keg of beer and are allowed to invite their girls. The officers never attend those parties, except that the officer in charge of the fund usually comes in for a moment at the start and says to have a good time. The officer of the day usually comes in at the end and tells them good night. Out of all the Army officers I spoke to today, not one could ever remember an officer so much as having taken a glass of beer at one of those parties. Hard liquor is flatly forbidden under any circumstances. I asked whether there's any possibility that the post exchanges might make the officers a gift of a party for the officers themselves. I was told that that is absolutely impossible, that it's against regulations, that the audits are so strict that it would be impossible to cover up, and that any officer involved in such arrangement would be subject to drastic punishment. The fact is, every penny of profits from every post exchange has to be accounted for, and it has to be devoted 100% and exclusively to the benefit of the soldiers themselves, and any officer who derives so much as a dollar's benefit is subject to court-martial. And let me say from personal experience that the tradition among officers in the Army is that the handling of those post exchange funds is an almost religious trust in in administering the benefits to the soldiers themselves. And that's the top of the news as it looks from here, ladies and gentlemen. Until tomorrow evening, good night.
2: Mondays through Fridays at this time, Fulton
3: Lewis Jr. brings you the top of the news from your nation's capital. These broadcasts originate at W.O.L. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.